In a moment, we're going to hear from Ruth on Ruth. So let's set the scene by reading the first 18 verses from the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Good morning. That was nice to be introduced already. Although I must say, I was going to introduce myself in a different way to you all this morning, which might have been the way in the not-too-distant past that I would have been introduced in a formal setting, which is to say that my name is Mrs Chris Fordyce, but you can call me Ruth. I was listening to an interview recently with Richard Glover, 
radio presenter and writer, about the book that he's written recently. I love this title. It's called The Land Before Avocado. It's about Australia in the 1960s and 70s. And so he's referring to back in the day before we all went to cafes and had cappuccinos and smashed avocado on toast, what Australia was like. And what caught my attention, having been reading and meditating on the book of Ruth, was that he was talking about what life was like for women in the 1960s and 70s in Australia, and particularly what it was like when they got married. So, for example, this one I knew, he talked about the fact that up until the year 1966, if you were a woman and you had a job in the public service, when you got married, you were sacked. Yes, some of the women are going to be nodding this morning, and some of you are going to be giving me these ones, depending on how old you are and whether you lived through these eras. But yes, you would get sacked because you were married, didn't really need that job anymore, you had a husband to provide for you, and if you think about it, it's a nice circular argument, if you can think about it this way, the the single women need a job, but the married women shouldn't really be taking up the jobs that the married men need because they've got to support the wives who don't have the jobs anymore. So it kind of works, doesn't it? But a couple of other ones that he mentioned that I wasn't actually aware of, he was talking about the fact that in the 70s was when credit cards were first coming in, but before that there were store cards, like Meyer or David Jones card, that sort of thing. And again, when you got married, you had to give your card back because you needed your husband's permission to have a credit card or a store card kind of makes sense because it's him earning the money, right? So you can't nip down to Myra and buy a pair of shoes without his permission earning the money. And the other one that caught my attention was you also needed your husband's permission to apply for a passport, so he had to sign your application. Because if you can't nip down to Meyer and buy a pair of shoes without his permission, you're certainly not going on any overseas jaunts without him knowing about it either. Now, why do I mention these things? Because today's story centres on what life was like for women. Not a few decades ago, but a few thousand years ago, in a very different time and place, in an area that we might call the ancient Near East, Today's story focuses on the lands of Israel and Moab. And marriage was the one thing that promised safety and stability for a woman in that time. So it wasn't so much that getting married changed things for women at that time. It was more so, woe to you, were you not married? And once you were married, you had one more job, to have children. Without those things, life was very risky and there was really nothing else that could give a woman a sense of identity and purpose. So in the light of that, I want to have a look again at these opening verses of Ruth. So we hear that Ruth and her husband and their two sons travel, they move because of a severe famine, to the land of Moab in the hopes of surviving. And in the space of a few short verses, we get this devastating punch in the guts about what life brings for Naomi. It says in verse 3 that Elimelech died, but there's a glimmer of hope. It's okay at this point because Naomi is left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. There's hope of the family continuing. But then, about 10 years later, both Marlon and Killian died. Now, the passage doesn't spell it out, But what's missing? Yeah, 10 years have passed and there are no children and now all the men have died. And if it wasn't clear enough for us, the narrator really spells it out. 
This left Naomi alone, without her sons or her husband. You know, I think as a modern reader, the first thing that I think of is just the devastating grief to lose all of the members of your family like that. But I think there's more to it than that. I think the first thing we think of is the grief, but it's actually so much more than that. Without a husband or children or grandchildren, Naomi has lost so much. She has lost her protection. Life is very risky for her now without any men to care for her. She's lost provision in this era when the the land is your source of livelihood and the land is passed down from man to man to man. It's very hard to provide for yourself. And she's also lost her sense of identity. Who, Who is she now? What is she going to spend her time doing? What is she supposed to do now that she has lost her family? So while this is a terrible situation for Ruth and Orpah as well, who've lost their husbands, it's Naomi who's the most at risk. And you might have heard in the passage, she goes on to explain a little bit later, that she is too old to go back to her parents and return to their home and hope that she will marry again. She says she's too old to have any more children. Really, her only hope is to go back to her relatives, back in Israel, back in Bethlehem, and hope for their charity. And that was one of the provisions in the laws of Israel at the time, that they were supposed to look out for and care for widows. But as we know, Israel doesn't always fulfil their duties that are spelled out in the law, and so it's a risky situation to be in. But news comes, Naomi has heard that things are better back home, that the famine is over, and so that's her plan, to set off on this journey back home. Now bear in mind, that's a journey of about 50 kilometres, to travel from this land of Moab back to her home in Bethlehem. And on foot, of course. I don't know how many women, or men for that matter, here today would feel all that enthusiastic about travelling on a dusty road by foot for 50 kilometres. doesn't sound very safe, does it? And her two daughters-in-law set out with her. Now, insert whatever mother-in-law jokes you like here. I'm not going to. But clearly... There's a very significant bond between these women. Did you hear how much emotion there is in this passage? These two young women want to go with Naomi. But before long, Naomi urges them to go back. The cultural expectation, and indeed the sensible thing to do, for each of these young women was what? Go find yourself a new husband. Go back. And of course, if you can, bear him some children, stat. That is what's going to ensure your security. And so this is what Naomi says to her daughters-in-law in in chapter 1 and verse 8. Go back. Go back to your mother's homes. And may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. And they all break down and weep. It's so heart-wrenching. I think about what Naomi is saying there. Go back to your mother's, which isn't actually a traditional thing to say. It would more likely be go back to your father's home. who can look after you. I think Naomi is sort of speaking out of her own grief there. Go back to your mother's. I'm not actually your mother. I'm not really anybody's mother anymore. You need to go back to your own family. And may the Lord bless you with another marriage because it's not going to happen for me. 
but it can happen for you. You can be okay, just go back home where you're going to be safe. Now, to their credit, they both want to go with Naomi, but she just keeps giving them all the reasons why that's a crazy idea. I, I can't provide for you, even if I could have more sons and somehow they could grow up and become your husband. No, that's not going to work. No, just that's silly. You should go back. And so Orpah, with much weeping, does the sensible thing, and she goes back. But Ruth is not having a bar of it. In verse 15, we get Naomi's last-ditch effort to convince Ruth that she should go back. You can almost imagine them on the road, this sort of crossroads, and one way's to Bethlehem and one way's back to Moab, and Orpah's heading back, you know, sobbing and wiping away the tears, but thinking, right, this is what I need to do. And it's like Naomi is pointing her out to Ruth and saying, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods, and that's what you should do. It's like she's saying to her, Ruth, you're not my family. You don't belong in the world where I'm going. You should go back. That's what's sensible. And then we get this impassioned response from Ruth. Now, Lionel, you read it so gently and poetically. A bit like, has anyone heard this passage at a wedding? Sometimes this is read at a wedding. It's such a beautiful piece of poetry. But I feel like I, as Ruth, I'm going to give it the Ruth treatment. I feel like she's a little bit more impassioned than we sometimes give her credit for. There's all this emotion and they're crying and Naomi's giving all these reasons why, you know, this is silly, you've got to go back. And I feel like she gets to a point where something just rises up inside of her and she says, stop telling me to leave you because I'm not going to. I am coming with you. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is now my God. I belong with you. I'm coming with you and I'm not just coming for the trip, I'm going to live with you. Where you live, that's where I'm now going to live. Where you die, that's where I'm going to die. You know what? They're going to bury me next to you. And so help me God, because apparently he is now my God, if anything but death is going to separate me from you, I'm coming with you. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined (laughs) to go with her, she said nothing more. Orpah hoped to become a wife again, but Ruth is absolutely committed to remaining Naomi's daughter. This is serious. These comments that she makes about, may God judge me if I, if I don't follow through on this, it's, it's an oath, or as they would have called it in the ancient world, it's a covenant. There's actually no legal marriage binding these two women as family anymore. It's just Ruth's covenant promise that she is committed to being family leaving behind her own family, her familiar home, her religious background, she's prepared to leave everything she knows for a completely unknown future with Naomi. It's an incredibly loving thing to do and a huge leap of faith. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Ruth does reference the Lord. Naomi's saying, you go back to your gods. And she says, no, I'm, going, I'm choosing your God. And then she actually calls on the name of God as she makes this promise. So it suggests to us there's something of a little bit of belief there already. There's something in these years that she spent with this family who've come from Bethlehem that she's come to know something of the Lord. But it seems that this is her all-in moment. Remember when Kathy was talking about that? You know, that we might journey a little bit, but, you know, there's that moment when are we all in? I think this is Ruth's all-in moment. She's joining Naomi's family And she's joining God's family. The stage is set. What is God going to do? 
And that's where we actually finish the reading, but I'm going to go on and tell you what the rest of the story is. Are these women actually going to be without protection, without provision, without a sense of identity? Now that God is involved, the story goes on. Naomi and Ruth make it back to Bethlehem. We don't really know what happens on the journey, but they get there. And then we get to chapter 2, which I feel has a Jane Austen sort of tone to it, because it starts like this. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem (laughs) named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. All right, now, all the Jane Austen fans laughed because you know what I mean by that. You don't just casually drop a character in like that, do you? We know that he is going to be a key player. And then we sort of get this fun unfolding through chapter two of all these events that just so happen to align. So it so happens that Ruth and Naomi have arrived back at the beginning of the barley harvest. And Boaz is a wealthy, influential man. So what does that mean? It means he has lots of land and all of his land is about to be harvested. So Ruth decides to go and glean. So just a little bit of history Gleaning means to go through a harvest field after the workers have come through and gather what is left. And there was actually a ruling in the law for the Israelites at the time that they were to allow people who were in need to come through and glean. So Leviticus 23.22 says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you. And it so happens that when Ruth goes out to glean, she finds herself working in a field that belongs to Boaz. And it so happens that Boaz shows up that day and notices Ruth working and asks about her. And his worker tells him, this is Ruth who's come with Naomi. And it seems like Boaz has actually heard about this story. And so immediately he goes over to Ruth And he says that she should stay in his fields and stay close to the other young women, so the women who are actually working for Boaz. So that's more than what someone would have normally allowed for someone who was gleaning. What he's saying is stay close to my people so that you will be safe. And he also says, I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. Protection. Ruth is surprised. Oh my goodness, you're being so kind to me. I'm only a foreigner. Why would you extend such kindness to me? Boaz tells her that he has heard about her commitment to Naomi. And he says to Ruth, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. In a sense, he's saying, Ruth, you're you're not a foreigner anymore. You're not a foreigner to God. You've come under his care and his protection. And that is extended to Ruth through Boaz and what he continues to do. He is really exceptional, actually. If you go and and read this story, it's such a great story. I encourage you to go home and, and read through the whole book. Not only does he meet the requirements of the laws at the time, he goes above and beyond them to provide for both Ruth and Naomi. So... He shares the food that is actually there set out for his own workers. 
He invites Ruth, come over, make, make use of this, take food that you need, take water that you need while you're working. And then, this is so fun, he actually says to his workers, okay, guys, don't harvest too well, okay? Like, just drop a bit of extra stuff on purpose. That's not what people at the time would have done. You know, you think about it. If, if you're a more savvy business person and you've got your workers harvesting your land, you know people are going to come behind wanting to glean. You would have been going for the opposite. You know, make sure you harvest really well. You know, don't drop too much. He's doing the opposite. He's wanting to make sure that Ruth and Naomi have all that they need. He is absolutely exceptional. And this goes on for some time. So all through the barley harvest and then all through the wheat harvest. Now, that's worth knowing as well, because then we get to chapter 3 and 4, and if chapter 2 had tones of romantic fiction, well, we really kick into it in chapters 3 and 4. And I'm not going to go into them, but it's worth the read, because there's some really quirky, ancient courtship stuff going on. And long story short, Boaz and Ruth get married. But I wanted to point out that, you know, that wasn't something that happened straight away. Again, Boaz is quite exceptional. I don't think he spots Ruth and instantly thinks, ooh, hmm, fresh arrival in my fields, I'll have her. There's actually quite a long time where he is just providing for her as a person in his community. And then it comes about that they get married. And then Ruth has a son. Do you remember Naomi's prayer, her blessing for her daughters-in-law? Her prayer for them was that the Lord would bless them with another marriage. She didn't even throw in the thing about kids, but presumably she was intending that too. Now, God has answered that prayer, but in a completely different way to what Naomi was originally thinking. Ruth's life is transformed. She's part of God's family, and she's part of the people of Israel. And through Ruth... Naomi's life is transformed. She was completely alone, bereft. But now she's part of the family again and has this beloved grandchild that she's been waiting for all these years. And it says in chapter 4 that she cares for him almost like her own son. There's this beautiful passage in chapter 4 and verse 14. When the women of the town gather around Naomi and they say to her, may this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. That's high praise in the ancient world, isn't it? (laughs) Better than seven sons. And here's the really cool part. They pray this blessing that this child will be famous in Israel. And he is famous. His name is Obed. So, okay, if that's not ringing any bells, you'll probably recognise the name of his grandson, David. We find Obed's name in the New Testament, the very opening of Matthew, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know what it says there? It says that Boaz was Obed's father and his mother was Ruth. Do you know they never listed women in Jewish genealogies, but Jesus' genealogy has five women in it and Ruth is one of them. How's that for a new identity? Ruth and Naomi are actually brought 
into the ancestry of Jesus Christ. And there's Ruth, not Mrs. Boaz. She's named Ruth. It's a story of incredible faith and commitment and a journey that leads to transformation of a grieving and lonely woman into a delighted grandmother and a young foreign woman into a named and an honoured ancestor of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And Travis suggested in this series that we think about transformation. We're looking at some different characters in the Bible, and I really wanted to do Ruth because I love her. And it was so hard to think about how do I summarise the story of transformation for these women, but I think this is what captures it for me, is that for both Ruth and particularly Naomi, this sense that once I was alone in every sense of the word, facing life without any sense of safety and security and belonging and identity, but now they are part of the family of God in the most incredible way. So what might this ancient story have to say to us? Well, firstly, I think this story speaks powerfully about God's provision. The fact that this story is even in the Bible is pretty remarkable. In the ancient world, what did the historians write about? Conquerors and explorers and even villains, but usually they were all men. The fact that a story about the plight of women is included in this text is so powerful. That God cares, that he cares about providing for his most vulnerable, for his beautiful children. You know, this story has an incredible ending, but it was a long time coming. You know, those short little verses that pack that punch about what happened for Naomi and for her daughters-in-law. There were years and years of pain and loss and waiting and confusion and then a very risky and dangerous journey to get to this point now where they have the incredible blessing of God. God's provision is certainly not always immediate and it's often very different to what our hopes are. There's a number of incredible prayers or blessings spoken through this passage and none of them really come to pass in the way that people are expecting. God actually answers them and in a much bigger way as he unfolds his kingdom purposes to bring the saviour of the world, Jesus Christ, through this family. But secondly, I think this is such a beautiful picture in Ruth about the family of God, about doing the journey together. Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and then Boaz's generosity to both Ruth and Naomi, their commitment to care for each other is what brings about transformation. God does not intend for us to be alone. Do you know where I got this picture from? It's the front of our Bible study series for the Ask series at the moment. And now we've got this little Ask card at home with the mountains on it, but I hadn't noticed until I looked properly at it this week. Can you see what's at the bottom? How cool is that? It's perfect for my sermon. There's two people doing their journey together. God does not intend for us to be alone. God's plan for our transformation is for us to do that journey together. There was just one thing that really struck me as I sat with this passage over the last few weeks, and that is that Naomi really fought off Ruth's efforts. Numerous times she tried to convince her, go back. This doesn't make any sense. You know, and I know that in our church, we are seeking to be the family of God and to do this journey together. 
And I wonder whether some of us need that spirit of Ruth to make that commitment to do life together. There are situations where you're sensing that I need to commit and I need to do the journey with people here alongside of me in this church or maybe even people outside of this church. But it struck me that sometimes when people are trying to offer that commitment to us, we do what Naomi did and go, no, it doesn't make sense. You've got, you're busy, you do your thing, you, you go do your journey. I'm okay, I'll work it out, I'll survive. And that is not actually what God wants us to do. He wants us to love others but he also wants us to allow others to love us. We are not meant to do this journey alone. Shall we pray? Father God, you are the God of Naomi. You are the God of Ruth. You are the God of Boaz. And you are, you are our God. God, we thank you that you see and that you care. Thank you that you provide for us, often in ways we don't expect, but always in ways that are about bringing about your kingdom purposes. And Father, we do pray that as we seek to be transformed, that we will do it together. We thank you for this incredible story of people who sacrificed so much, who had courage, who took risks in order to care for each other and to become family And Lord, that's our heart for our church. I pray that every person here would have a sense that this is their family and that there are people here that want to journey with them. And I pray even today, God, that people would take steps, if if they're feeling on the edges of things, Lord, to step into being part of family life here in this church. And that in doing that, that they will experience your transformation that comes through community. Amen. The faithfulness of God and the kindness of God shows up in such clear ways in the story of Naomi and Ruth, and it continues to outwork uh, in the world today. That God would include us in his family, that God would adopt us, that God would welcome us home. However you're finding yourself feeling today, I pray that you really understand that, that you have a people, that you have a family, that you belong And reach out and experience and receive that kindness of God, uh, which is often best found in and best experienced in and best received in the context of family, uh, the family of God. So I encourage you, if you're struggling with something, actually need some support, why don't you actually connect with one of the family, the people among who you belong? Can we just celebrate that God is faithful and God is kind and God continues to give us a hope and a future? Amen? Amen.